now, your host. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your source of information about interdimensional exploration. Tonight, we're actually doing a review of a podcast we've already released, uh, the one that Blix recorded at TotalCon. Blix, you were there with a number of other role-playing writers and designers. Could you tell us something about those guys that you were with? Three guests that we had on there were uh, Jay Libby, James Carpio, and John Sushenberger. Jay Libby, he runs Dilly Green Bean Games. He's done some work with Fusion uh, with uh, Artel Saurian. I think he did some stuff with the Doctor, the new Doctor Who game, and he, he runs his own system as well. He has a bunch of books out for his own stuff. I, oh, and he's also a really good friend of mine, so I invited him to be on the panel. And then James Carpio, he's sort of in the same line. He's done some fusion stuff. He's done some of his own stuff. He runs a company called Chapter 13 Press. He did some writing for a Syl- Sylvan magazine. He just recently got a Savage Worlds license, and he's going to be working with us to take the world that he's done and include Fringeworthy into it officially. So he's our first collaboration for Fringeworthy Savage Worlds. The other guy, uh, John Sussenberger, he's just a friend of ours. He did one book that he did some work with. He worked with Jay Libby on a book. But other than that, he's just a super avid gamer. He's one of those guys that, that we like to call a gaming architect. He hasn't developed anything professionally, but you know a lot of his his personal stuff is professional level quality, so I figured those three guys would be great for the show. Well, great. You paused it as your topic. You wanted to get their take on interdimensional explorations or an interdimensional role-playing game. Right. You just pretty much threw out the idea saying, hey, if you guys were going to create an interdimensional role-playing game, what would the issues be and, and how would you go about doing it? Right. The first thing you said was, what genre would you start with going to what genre? So pirates to high-tech versus, or would you go from modern, dark espionage to past pirates, for example? Yep. And they liked a lot better, it seemed, the idea of going from the high-tech to the past because they said that all the examples that they'd ever seen where they you took somebody from a, a past environment and threw them into the future, it was always like a bad movie premise, like Beastmaster. Right, yeah, exactly. That, that was exactly the uh, example they gave. Yeah, but I think what, what Bruce is asking is, is, why does that seem to be bad? You know, why is it that that's so cheesy and awful? I think it's too much comedic value for having the country bumpkin from the 18th century middle America in 20th century New York. It's just too goofy. Or the Australian from the Outback. It's a fish-out-of-water episode. Isn't all of interdimensional exploration fish-out-of-water? They had the galloping dumb sometimes. Or, the converse, the person from the Outback or from the jungle or from whatever is the wise person. The Kung Fu series. The legend continues, yeah. The episode where everybody was dying of some kind of a flu and nobody could come up with a solution, but Kwai Chang, using his skill in apothecarism, was able to compound the solution for somebody. So you had that ancient knowledge that was still better than the best stuff we had. <laughs> I think the reason why it really kind of reeks of cheesiness is because 
it's not easy for somebody from the 20th century to blend into the 17th century, but it's easier for somebody from the 20th century to blend into the 17th century than it is the other way around, because we can look back on that. We have an idea of what that was like, whereas somebody from the 17th century couldn't possibly imagine what it's like to be where we are. Um, they wouldn't recognize anything, whereas we have to look back, oh, look, it's a horse. That is a crossbow. If you, if you were in the way in the future, you pulled out a laser gun, they would have no idea what you were, you know, oh, what's that? Like if somebody pointed a phaser at them, they would just get shot. Yeah, shooting somebody through a mirror. Right, right, exactly. Culture shock would be to the point where those, those folks would be able to function properly. Now, now, done properly, I mean, it could be done. It's just so much more difficult to get right. Remember the old What If series from uh, Marvel? Yes. yes. One, sure. One of those was Conan the Barbarian in modern New York. Right. And actually, it was very well done. First time he robbed somebody, he threw away all the dollar bills and kept all the change. <laughs> That's funny. In today's society, he would be a gangster. So I, I think what you're saying here is that bringing somebody from the past, especially a technological past, unless it was one of those worlds where it, even though it was a technological past, it was like a magical superior culture where they were essentially had replaced technology with magic to the same level – you have such a high degree of accommodation that you have to do that it's really very, very hard for a player to feel like they're being successful in the game. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. While you take somebody from the future into the past, they already have this sense of superiority because you know how things are going to happen and you know what sorts of things will work and what they will work. And of course you have all the secret knowledge of future technology at your disposal as your secret weapon. So Bruce, let's say I'm going to send you back 300 years in time. Uh, will you be able to build a car? A car? Yeah. Um, absolutely. With what? 300 years. I would make it out of wood. I'm sure. Basically it won't be a car. It'd be a horse drawn carriage right? Not necessarily. It could operate on a spring or a flywheel. Those are technologies that were available back then. I don't think they made them, but you could have made them back then. But I think John's point is, would you be able to do that? Do you have the technical knowledge to make that happen? Given enough time, I would say yes. But in the course of an adventure within a limited time constraint, no, of course not. I don't have enough knowledge to do that today. Well, I think that's his point. Yeah. Yeah. My computer sitting in front of me is going to be impossible 300 years ago. Of course. Yeah. There was a story called the Star Child series. Mm. Uh, I think it was Jack Williamson did it. At one point in it, you had this group of people who had become a religious order. They actually talked to computers in a binary language using sound. They were able to create these sound phonomes where they were able to speak in essentially a programming language directly to computers without using anything other than a microphone. Oh. And if you could imagine a future in which everybody did that, and you took somebody from the present and threw them into the future, well, here they wouldn't be able to speak that language, so they wouldn't be able to operate the most common devices. Was that the language du jour also? No, no. They also spoke a regular language. But if you were to walk up to the door and your door was an automatic door and you were to, you were supposed to whistle a few tones that would tell it to open the door for you, well, you from the past, without that knowledge, you're butting your head against the door. You'll never get inside your house. Yeah. 
coming from the future into the past, and of course this is a known past, a, an understandable past, then you're fine. If you were going into the past that was a fourth century Roman, but it was full of sorcerer kings and, and people used all kinds of, of magic to go around, you'd be just as much as C. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. It de- you're talking about going into the past. Well, it depends on what past, you know, what kind of past campaign you're running. Because if you're talking about going back into some place like D&D, forget about it. One of us winds up there. We're not going to last very long. You'll end up being a thief, or if you're lucky, a bard. Right. With a lot of practice, you might be able to get to be a bard. If I was lucky, I, I would end up being the guy who mucks out the stall in the stables. You know what I would do? I would get a job as a barkeep. Knowing the game that we have, which is fringeworthy, right. I would spend my time becoming a scribe. Right? Yeah. Because even in the D&D world, there's, your average person still didn't know how to read or write. That's true. That's true. So that already puts you up in a usable area. And, of course, you know it's not that hard to learn how to do an abacus, but it's really hard to understand what calculations and multiplications are if you've never dealt with it before. Oh, my goodness. You know, actually, you know, we could do well. If you think about it, you get hired on. You could actually probably work in the castle as, as an advisor, I mean, pretty quickly because you'd be proven out very quickly to be smarter than 99% of the people in the town. Oh, oh yeah. You couldn't fabricate anything like a craftsman, but just your knowledge of things like a, your general knowledge of chemistry, your general knowledge of biology and such. Now, I, of course, I wouldn't talk about it in those terms, but it's just the, the things that you would know, the consequences of doing things like, you know, you could advise them, you need to wash your hands. You must cleanse your hands of the yeah. demons that infest your f- It wouldn't be like the plumbing of today. But I guarantee you any one of us could give them a rudimentary plumbing system. Right. Irrigation. Yeah. Four crop rotation. These are all basic concepts we learned in grade school. Right. Just knowing that you that this is important would allow you to, with a little bit of experimentation, be able to be something that could really improve the overall productivity of the kingdom. Yep. Yeah. And while I might be able to reproduce, you know, given access to saltpeter, sulfur, and charcoal, eventually come up with the right formula for gunpowder. It's real dicey as far as getting that mixture right. You know, you'd be making a lot of accents before you get that right ratio. I would not be able to make fulminating mercury for the caps. I definitely was having a lot of trouble believing that Kirk actually was able to construct a workable gunpowder on that one episode where he was up against the Garn, wasn't it? Yep, yep. And they proved it in in, uh, Mythbusters. There's no way you can make it. (laughs) Part of the process of making gunpowder, make it really well, you have to get it wet so you can make a cake, and then you grind the cake to get the proper size of of grains. grains. You would never think to use water and gunpowder, but you need to to make a cake of gunpowder to grind on down. Hmm. Part of the secret of making gunpowder. <laughs> that is a, a pitfall of going to other worlds. If you are of a future or modern mm-hmm. origin world and you go back to the past, certain tech may not be supported. Either just it hasn't been made yet, or they don't know how, or they don't have the proper components to make it. Right. Or if you go back to a D&D world, you have the old standard convention of well, the gods decree that this technology is not available. They don't want it here. You may be a modern-day explorer with a modern-day gun, and you go to some fantasy world with divine magic, and you find out that all of your weapons don't work. 
like the yeah. chemical reaction for gunpowder doesn't occur or moving parts like that. It's beyond clockwork technology, so they won't work. You're going to have to pistol whip your enemies because you won't be able to fire a bullet. That's <laughs> one of the pitfalls of technology when you go mm-hmm. international gaming. Right. Oh, yeah. Even with these pitfalls, if you can bring technology with you, it's still better than to go the alternate way, which is to come from somebody with a low-tech into a higher-tech world because of all the information you're going to have to learn before you can even start functioning in their society. Yeah. Now, they also talked about the pitfalls of explorers going to other worlds. Mm-hmm. We've already just talked about the fact that where you go someplace and the uh, tech uh, is not supported and fails. Right. Another one that they mentioned, there are unexpected consequences such as the Prometheus Syndrome, where you decide that you're going to show everybody how to do this thing and solve the world's problems by fixing something in the past or in some primitive culture, and something completely unexpected happens. Right. Yeah, their example was piece of the action. Everything is in balance. Nothing is isolated in anywhere in the world. If you go and make one country that was the underdog, the big power, then it may cause an alliance amongst other countries that were neutral against them, or that country that was also downtrodden may turn out to be full of vicious, vindictive people who now they've got the opportunity to be the superior culture are going to enforce their ways upon everybody that they can. Right teaching them how to have clean water, and just by washing hands, you can prove their medicine a hundredfold. The basic <laughs> science principles, science is the knowledge, technology is the tools. Being from the future or a modern era going back into the past makes you an incredibly valuable person then. Just knowledge itself will make you a king. The biggest fear I always had Okay, you come into the king's court, you show them what you can do. The next thing you know, you, you no longer have hands, you no longer have uh, eyes. You know, you're just expected to sit there and just start telling stories about what your culture is like, and then his wise men will try to figure out how to do it. Because you're just too valuable to let loose. Right. Why would the king ever let you leave after you showing how useful you can be? Right, or you might get burned at the stake. Oh, that too. Almost every step of of what we call progress has been opposed by one group or another, and especially religious orders. Oh, yeah. 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 People don't like change. There Hmm. is a movie. It's more space travel, but it has to do with someone from the future, a future society being dropped in a past society. It Mm -hmm. is called Outlander. It has um, Jim Caviezel from um, Frequency. And uh, Ron Perlman and John Hurt, and it's basically about a spacefaring person coming to Viking-era Earth, and he brings a creature akin to a dragon with him. But it's a prime example of having the futuristic guy, and he hardly had any technology. He ended up having to use knowledge more than anything to save his bacon, to try to help these Vikings fight the Morwind, which was this dragon-like creature that was just... Otherwise, just ripping these Vikings apart. And these right. Vikings were, you know, huge fighters and all this, and they had axes and hammers on. And this Morwin's just whipping them around like they're dolls. And it was this one guy with the knowledge from a star-faring culture that was able to save them because he knew how the thing fought, how to deal with it. And so future in the past, 
just knowledge is often the deciding factor. Yeah. But he was ostracized. He was almost killed because he was a stranger. He was an outlander. Bringing this future technology back, you know, saving lives, you'd cause them to overpopulate their area very quickly because they're not used to that kind of growth. And they don't have the other technologies to back it up. If you don't have a proper sanitation system, you can wash your hands and everyone you know, lives a little better until all of a sudden you get so close together that suddenly there's typhoid and you have this enormous plague that goes off. For a while, it looks great. Everything's doing better and better. And then there's this huge catastrophic thing happen. And everyone looks at you like, well, your idea didn't work at all, did it? Right. I mean, we deal with this today. Technology without ethics can be very dangerous. We learned how to do atomic energy, how to release the power of the atom, and look at the full potential that we have done with that. Yeah, Technology yeah. always has to have some type of ethical boundary attached to it, and that goes for transdimensional gaming. If you are going back, you introduce certain concepts you got to try to keep in mind, and obviously you, no one can get the full extrapolation of what they bring to these people, but you got to realize, okay, if I do this, I know that maybe this, this, and this will happen, so i got to be careful. Like Bruce said, there may be a short-term win, but the long-term goal could be dangerous. So you got to sit there and apply ethics to any science or technology you give a past culture. That's why in Star Trek they had the prime directive, not to mess with other people's cultures. That yeah. same reason. Yeah, and that'd be true for any inter interdimensional traveler. As much as you would like to interfere with the local, the locals and their politics, you could easily just do right. more harm than good. Well, see, yeah, Fringeworthy doesn't have that, from what I recall. It's they go in and they help, anyways. Right, but you're trying to establish a long-term relationship, so you're not just going in, making a whole lot of changes, and then walking away and not owning the, the responsibility for what might happen after that. Yeah. So when center doesn't hold, you then can mount a relief effort or you can have an advisor there to say, hey, wait a second, before your city gets any bigger, you need to start having fire stations every third corner or you need to start digging in uh, some real sewers now. Yeah. Can't just go and just think everything's going to be fine. It's all interconnected. You bring in the Romans from Pax Romana because they're used to putting in sewers. They're used to putting in piping and all that stuff. Rome was known for one thing. It was known for their sewers and known for their irrigation and bringing in fresh water. If there were plagues, it was plagues because, as we said, people living too close together. It wasn't from bad sanitation, though. There's always one thing that's going to happen. You can't just go and do something and walk away. Yeah. Uh, that's why IDED doesn't believe in that. That's why they're mm -hmm. trying to build a relationship instead of going out there like raiders and going from one world to another trying to find high tech and saying, oh, didn't have what we needed, see you later, and they leave. They don't do that. They're trying to build a relationship with every world that they come to if it's possible. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I would say that if you're going to have an interdimensional travel, you've got to own up to the responsibility of your actions and make sure that you check back in regularly to see that you haven't started some terrible thing. Right. Oh, yeah. And if you can find Fringeworthy from there, recruit them. Then they get to go back home every so often to check on things. They can become the person who acts as the 
Liaison. Well, I don't want to use the word liaison because that doesn't really tell us enough. They're the person that bridges the cultural understandings where you're like, well, I'm going to go do this. And they're like, well, yeah, but if you do that, then this is going to happen because so-and-so has an edict against that. Or the people down south, that's what they make, and they're going to come. They're going to war against you because you're removing their ability to trade. You're undercutting their markets. Yeah. So you need local experts too to help you with this. Oh, yeah. Going back to our critique, uh, then Blix went entirely off the reservation <laughs> and started talking about what would make great villains. One of the guys he said that the villain has to be personal. It can't be a faceless enemy. It's got to be somebody that the characters really care about. And I was thinking of both Bureau 13 and also Fringeworthy. That's something that we really haven't been promoting as far as anything in our writings. The Chileans have an opportunity to be that kind of a competitive or vindictive enemy against Fringeworthy teams. We really don't have anybody else out there in the game. In the portal books, we do introduce the Coptics in the second portal oh, book. Oh, yeah, the Rumi, yes. Oh, I use them in my campaign. Oh, yes, they're fun. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Bruce, I wasn't going completely off the reservation. It just kind of went that way. <laughs> I was trying to get them to come up with interdimensional villains. Right. What would make a good interdimensional villain? Let's just explain who the Coptics are for those who have not yet grabbed the portal books. The Coptics are the, I pronounce it the Rumi, R-W-M-E is how it is in their language. It's basically the Roman and Egyptian Empire banded together. And they managed Mm -hmm. to found the fringe portals on their world, which I believe is negative 140 prime. And they have started sending out who they call the Blessed of Ra out on the fringe paths in order to look for various things to help them conquer their world further. And unfortunately, that means, oh, look, this planet is full of people. I'm slaves. I mean, people. Let's let's conquer it. <laughs> oh, no, they're, oh, yeah. they're nasty. Oh, I play them to the hilt. And if they get their hands on technology, it even mm-hmm. says in the write up. Yeah, their emperor is looking for these things called nuclear weapons that he's heard that they're the blessed of Ra have seen on other worlds. So, yeah, the Coptics. Yeah, they would make good interdimensional villains because you're going to find them all over looking for new weapons. The Hammers of Ra, they're looking yes. for. And Bureau 13 does have, I mean, if you throw in Matthias Bolt and make him just be a real SOB. But is he a personal villain? Do we have any personal villains? I think personal villains, except for rare exceptions, are usually campaign specific. Yeah. All right. Well, that's fair enough. I was thinking that, to me, the easiest way to introduce a personal villain is to actually have a team member... Go rogue. That's what I do in my campaign. My main villain is a rogue IDET scientist who has found things he's not supposed to and is now using them as a power play in the setting that I use. Mm. So the player characters have been doing a one-upman as far as, okay, he's found something. Well, now they found something and the balance is maintained. Now the villain finds something better. Now the hero's got to find something to counter that new threat. I always went back to the classics because they were interdimensional already. Uh, the mythos, Cthulhu mythos. <laughs> you know, how, how are you going to deal with critters that basically can dimension walk and go wherever they want to? 
Yeah, I can see it now. They go through the portal. Oh, thank God. Oh, oh, finally got away from him. <laughs> what is that? You know. <laughs> right. <laughs> In year 13, you can have agents who go rogue. Yeah. That's a little bit harder to work against uh, you know, your own ages because of the kind of episodic and non-sequential type adventures that you have. But if Matthias Bolt didn't like you, you know, he does have a lot of magic at his disposal. And it wouldn't be hard for him to create a group of, of cultists, hunters, that were going after your particular bureau team. Yeah. And they could keep showing up because it's like, okay, uh, let me do some divination here. Oh, great Satan, give me the knowledge. And some mm -hmm. demon pops up and says, yeah, you know, two weeks from now, they're going to be investigating some strange little witch happening over there in Dalton, Georgia. Oh, really? Okay, fine. So they go and they lay in wait for the Bureau 13 team and they start messing with them. So, you know, you've got this dueling divination kind of going on. So you could have these guys showing up again and again, and they would make them personal because you kept seeing them again. Or the agents working for Senator Garn are showing up and making trouble for you. Because there's an interesting person. He's not evil. He thinks the Bureau is completely a waste of time. He doesn't believe in the supernatural. He thinks it's all fake. He thinks the Bureau's just simply faking it all, and he's got his agents out there trying to catch the Bureau in, in the action so he, can, so he can blow the whistle on them. Right. You know, we're, we're creating so-called supernatural instances, and then we're solving them to justify money expended on our behalf to keep us in existence kind of concept. So he's trying to expose the Bureau for, you know, it, its existence and then also to, you know, make sure that we, the, there are no friends of the Bureau in Congress anywhere. I don't think it's ever really worked well. But if Senator Garn, for example, was being funded secretly by the Brotherhood. Or the Windwillow Coven. Or the Windwillow Coven, then here you have somebody who is acting in his heart uh, out of purity, and he's trying his very best to stop you because he believes you're doing something wrong. Here you have a, a righteous villain, in a sense, because yeah. he's an obstruction. And his agents, the ex-Secret uh, Service guys that he's hired, you know, that he has under his wing, those guys could become your reoccurring antagonists. Yeah, because they could easily become your, your bestest allies if they, if they do discover that, A, Supernatural's real, and... B, you are doing something that is for the good of the country. So, you know, he may lose agents every so often because, well, they get recruited by the Bureau. You know, we were talking about making villains personal. One of the things that, that uh, we've done in our group, uh, our Game Masters for us, he's done this more than once, but he likes to make someone at IDET the villain. You're being sent on missions, and one of the head guys or, or one of the really high ups has actually got nefarious plans. So, you know, as the plot unrolls, you start to get more suspect of this guy. Generally, what it turns out to do is we either stop whatever he's doing or that's the point at which he disappears from my debt and then we go track him down or whatever. Or we have further dealings with him. could be something like you go back to IDET and you know, you're dating somebody that he's interested in. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, your team starts getting more and more dangerous missions to go on. Right. Or you go on a mission and support that you were supposed to get never shows up. Right. You know, all kinds of reasonable reasons why your missions are getting harder and harder. But the fact is, he's out to get you. Yeah. Or that high level crystal that you found and turned in is never available for some reason. He's got on a little necklace around his neck trying to make himself fringe worthy. 
But if you do that, you got to make sure that you reveal this information. Yes. You can't just have him to be some secret guy in the background screwing over the team. You've got to reveal pretty early on that he's out to get you, and but no one else knows it and no, or no one else believes it. And so he walks in and drops down this thing. Okay, here's your next mission, boys. Right. And turns around and walks out. Right. He says, I hope you make it. I hope it works out for you. Right. And he winks at you or something like that right. or sneers at you and walks out. If yeah. a mission commander is against you you know you get one team that found a hell and Mm -hmm. that's where he sends you you know so you go into this meller infested world and uh you know he expects you to not make it and of course if you're a good game master you've you know you haven't set them up to to all die yeah they come back and of course they're looking for this guy and then that's probably about the time when he makes a break for it because you know at that point you're not asking people permission and it also depends really too and and where your campaign is. If you're in a later campaign, he's fringe-worthy because you're out 40, 50 nodes out there. So you, you only go back to Hatsumi once every couple of years because it takes so long to drive back. Yeah. So he's a, he's a regional commander getting orders from back home every so often. And he's decided, you know what? I can set myself up as an emperor here. I can set my own little empire and bleep, bleep, you know, I debt. But he's going to do it on the sly. So he's going to start, you know, assembling his own his own special teams, and you're not one of the special teams, right? People with those crystals have access to those crystals are going to become fringe worthy eventually. Yep. Yes. Even eventually, General Borden may, may become fringe worthy because he, you know, initially he's going to be one handing all the crystals. Yeah. Doctor Hatsumi might eventually become fringe worthy. You never yeah. know. You only have to handle it here. once a year. Once, once a year. year. Yeah, so that's not hard at all to happen. I think it's a good idea to make enemies personal. Because the biggest problem I have with the way we have currently with the Meller is is that the Meller are, A, so strong, basically don't want them to ever run into them except, you know, when, when they're higher level, low level hardly at all. And then we have them so well stuck inside of uh, their worlds you know, or at least that's usually how the GMs play it, that they don't really become those kinds of personal villains. But it doesn't have to be that way. The, a high meller, there's no reason why a high meller can't be walking around all the time because he just has to get the frizzly form. He can have the crystal. Yeah. He could be the traitor that you see, one of the fringe walkers. You know, he can follow you around, messing with you, or uh, as you go through worlds and, and start changing things up and destabilize them, he follows behind you and takes advantage of that and mm. you know, tips things in the, in the direction he wants. Because when you go and add in radical changes to a world to make them better, you're also making them unstable. And that's just the way the Meller like it. Oh, yeah. They like it unstable. So here's this guy who seemingly helping you, but in fact is, you're just setting up these worlds for him to reap destruction on. And because he can then change form again, you've lost track of him. You don't know where he is, but he, so he keeps popping up again and again. So you could have a high meller who isn't just always running around trying to bite people's heads off, just you know, acting to destroy you know, world after world that you keep running into. There's a frustration level that you don't want to do. I mean, you don't want it to be every world. But there's definitely uh, some good opportunities there to make a Meller into a personal villain. Especially if you go and kill off maybe some of his trusted lieutenants. 
because there's nothing to say that a Meller doesn't develop a relationship with any of the other Meller that are under him. They're not just fodder. I mean, why wouldn't he have a trusted lieutenant? One game that I ran, the Fringeworthy Pulp Adventure, I had the Mellor, Master Mellor, masquerading as four separate pulp-style villains, each with their own goons. And so, as these various bosses would pop up throughout the city, okay, this one went into hiding, oh great, now, and it's like whack-a-mole. This was the backstory I had, where, okay, you stopped the woman that embodies herself as Kali, oh great, now the Nazi commandant is acting up again, okay, we quashed him down, oh, the, the mafia boss is, is acting up. I made it personal where it was actually the Miller popping thro up throughout the city, and the game that I ran was actually the heroes snuck in and said, okay, all these four crime bosses are going to be here, what do you mean they're all the same person? Mm -hmm. Then they find out later what a Miller is. Right. So I had that. So I had built up a backstory because it was the first time I'd ever played this, this campaign. So I had to tell the players the backstory. Okay, this has been happening. And then played out the, the big boom. Here's the, the surprise. And the players were impressed. They're like, what? <laughs> because they never, none of them had ever played Fringeworthy except for uh, Becky. And they were the other players were like, wait a minute, what? what? This guy can do what? <laughs> so what did you think about the guy that wanted uh, all his villains to be funny villains? Oh, oh, the space Nazi rats. Yeah. Oh, Jay. <laughs> I mean, sometimes we do take ourselves very seriously in this game. And, you know, maybe a romp isn't such a bad idea. Right. Well, it could be an other. We don't talk about others too often. They're harder to do. Yeah, they are. They are. But there's no reason why you couldn't go to a world where there are space Nazi rats. Uh, if I was steal from our previous interdimensional campaign, Ratus Sapiens. Right. Yeah, you know, they're they're intelligent rats. You know, they stand about three foot tall, but you know they're intelligent rats. They found the fringe. Well, frankly, when I first read about Hardwired Hinterland, I pretty much thought that this was a game that was going to be played primarily as a joke. Hmm. You got the the intelligent animals from Oz. You got almost snidely whiplash uh, air pirates. The the natives uh, of Etowongo that are like the most you know, classic TV Western Indians or uh, South Sea uh, Islanders where, you know, from Gilligan's Island or such. I mean, every, almost every one of them could oh, be, yeah. with just just slight effort, pure stereotype. Yeah, bad stereotype. Oh, yeah. Here you have an entire world that's filled with bad stereotypes. Right. You could have gone that way instead of taking it seriously. So the other one is, are they all Polynesians? No. Half of them are from Europe. They like the, the lifestyle. Yes, I am gentleman. What, what of that? <laughs> hmm. It doesn't mean everyone else is Polynesian. Just right. the chief. Yeah, he could be a Jewish haberdasher. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ex-Jewish haberdasher, yeah. I guess. Unless, of course, he wants a really fancy hat for the chief. Well, he'd be a good enemy for the space Nazi rats. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> When you talk about a lot of characters, and I, I like this idea, is that you could just take somebody who's an enemy in literature or in TV or movies, somebody that everyone would recognize, and then just play them entirely against type. Mm -hmm. That's something that's easy to do in Fringeworthy. Cobra is actually the good guys. G.I. Joe are the bad guys. Magneto, well, he's been good and bad. <laughs> right. Just pick any classic villain and turn him around and any classic hero and turn him around. 
right? Professor right. Xavier that he kidnaps children, mutant children, and turns them to his own, you know, own devices. Yeah, mind dominates them and yeah. uses them for his own vile purposes. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Sure. Oh yeah. yeah. Marvel's probably done that already, at least in one of their what ifs or whatever. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I guess we get to the one question at the end where you said, okay, why isn't there more interdimensional gaming? Yes. And they said that it's the kind of game that needs a huge buy in from standard players. It's not your standard game, it's something that they haven't done before. You have to get players who are willing to do a mashup. Right. Who are willing to go from one genre to another versus saying, well, I just want to play this game, this, this genre, instead of these characters from this genre now suddenly being over in another genre. So, like, the you've got the cyberpunk guys in the uh, Viking world. That's a mashup. That's a cross-genre game. Not every player is interested in that. Yeah. I think the other reason is, is I call it the Thousand World Stare. Because it's potentially you you got thousands of worlds your players can go to if they if they decide they, they pop through the portal they spin the dial they use the device they pop through look around and go nope don't want to go here bye and leave and then let's go to the next one see what's in that one GM it's you got right rough shot on your players so they don't do that no you just have to get buy in from them saying look guys you just can't do that it's just too much work for me. I realize that there's eight other portals on this platform, but you just can't just go and go hopping from one to the other. You know, our game master used to do, because there was a couple of times that we had actually done that to him. <laughs> that one time he's like, we, we actually sat there for like two hours. Just He's like, well, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Well, I don't know. So basically the game went nowhere for two hours, and we finally decided, all right, let's just go back to that portal. Uh-huh. Because the, that's what the game. Because we would we would walk into another portal, and the world would have nothing. It would just be a forest, and there's just nothing to do there. And he's just like, yeah, it's a it's a world with a forest. It's yeah. And and other times, you know, one, well, I think one time we did it to him, and he said he said, all right, well then I guess when you guys are game mastering, then because uh, I don't have anything else. I think that is a very justifiable response. Right. You want to go in this world? Somebody else better a game master because I didn't write up this adventure for this world yet. Right. It's like, look, <laughs> I set this whole thing up. There's something for you to do there. It's something that's right. enticing for your characters. You don't want to go? That's fine. I'm not going to make you go. But if that's the case, I'm going to pull out my character. And one of you guys can run something. Okay. Trav, yeah. what did you think of the one guy's idea to randomly grab three GURP supplements and then just use them to create a world? Well, what did he say? I think cyber or steampunk circus and medieval. And I'm just like, I'm listening to this and my mind's just going click, work, click, work. I'm just not seeing how these, you know, the chocolate, peanut butter and motor oil are going to fit together. <laughs> oh, I'm just thinking, oh, you can grab three GURPS uh, supplements. So I go, I just close my eyes, reach out, I grab space travel one. Time travel and in, in, in interdimensional. Oh, I'm going. Oh, how am I going to put these suckers together? <laughs> Come on, that's not really serving the purpose. <laughs> I mean, there, there's not enough specifics in that. I mean, you you kind of want to grab like cultures to mix together. Yeah. See, I, space travel, time travel, and dimension travel. I think that's been done already. Yeah? Isn't that Doctor Who? Yeah, it's all travel. As a matter of fact, it's Fringeworthy. It's called Fringeworthy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Right. I think, you know, he was being a little uh, wide open on that, but I th- let's say you take out the close your eyes. I'm going to have to find three GURPS books that I can tie together. That's something that's very doable. 
you know, like you take Victorian, space travel, pirates. Okay, now you've got John Carter, Mars type of thing. Space 1889? I'm just thinking that one, John. Yes, yeah, Space 1889. Changing it up so that you're actually picking the books that you want. Then you're okay. Then I think then I think you've got something that's viable. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing the purely random thing. It's just that if you do it and you don't feel a frisson occurring, then do it again. Yeah. Okay. Until you find it happening. And, 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 that, and that actually is a good suggestion for those who actually do use the random tables to roll up your worlds in Fringeworthy. If you don't like the result, do it again. I mean, you don't. You're not. You're not set in stone for the for your different worlds. If you have an idea, go with it. You know, and maybe you might it might work out, or, or just change the one that isn't working. Yeah, pick out three at random, and then you have one that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Exchange oh, it, like that that circus one. Yeah, you can just pull in. You know, if you have like steampunk and cyberpunk, and then get you know, old west or something. You know, because I know Gerps has an old west book. I like the cape that was on television. And I especially like the fact that they threw in the carnival crime as his ally. <laughs> you know, not, not that I really like carnivals, but just the fact that it was something that was not in most of these kinds of superhero-type stories. The supervillain circus, yeah. They're villains, but they're helping him because the, you know, he's trying to take down the biggest villain in town. And they're not that villainous. They're just, there's just a little bit of villain. And then they went on to how should an interdimensional character be trained? What kind of skill sets? One guy says, well, what you really need is common sense. That's not actually a game system. No, no. I addressed that. And they called him on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting where he, he's, he basically said that except for basic survival skills, primarily what you would need where it would yes. be social skills and etiquette. Yes. Being able to fit in would yeah. probably be the number one requirement for being a interdimensional traveler that was one i I totally had to agree with i think he's 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 right on the money with that right yeah he wasn't agreed with by the other one one guy said no 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 you need to have whatever the group was that went around with doc savage where they were all super experts Mm -hmm. so you had the one guy who was the super combat guy and so he took care of all the combat stuff and then you had the other guy who was the survival guy that he made sure that area was taken care of yeah there's long tom who was electrical engineer the monk was a chemist han was a lawyer i used to read the series but yeah each one was a specialist in a certain field right right but the only way that works is if everybody works really well together i mean teamwork is paramount i think it also works too if you use a system where doc savage is not a player character that's that's a given problem the biggest problem i have with that is we're assuming that you're going to be with your whole team all the time and you're never going to get separated from them and anyone who's played Fringeworthy more than one time knows that that is an impossibility that is actually a ludicrous thought I, I have almost never played more than one session where I one of the team members wasn't separated for some reason or another you could go anywhere you can wind up anywhere in any situation you can't count on this guy you know the medic being the only guy who knows first aid of any kind that's just that's insane. And you can't depend on having a doc box with you every time. Right. That doc box maybe with the guy who knows how to use it, and he's the one that separate, separated, or you're been separated. Now you got to deal with the fact you just got wounded, and the, and you don't have a doc box or a medic. 
I'm thinking if you've got four people on the team, you need to have one guy who's probably a, a decent medic and then two of the other members at least having some first aid of some kind. So are you saying it doesn't work or it just can't it, – it can't be super polarized? It can't be super polarized. You, okay. I'm not saying you can't have experts. I mean you, you kind of have to because not everybody can be an expert in everything they need to be. Right. But you can't have super experts. You can't have someone who's I am a fighter and that's all I do. And this other guy is I'm a pilot and a driver and such and that's all I do because that guy who drives or pilots or whatever, he's going to get in a situation where he's going to need to be somewhat of a fighter. Because the fighter is going to get knocked out, or he's going to get separated, or you know, uh, killed, you know, and then what? Yeah. Trev, what did you think about the idea of swappable skill sets, having like mechanical educators, like in Dollhouse? We're going to go to this world, so everybody that gets to pick up a specific personality with a specific skill sets. I'm reminded of the series The Pretender, uh-huh. where this pick up a skill set and just go with it and be as if other than that he was pretty much a clean slate he had very few social skills or any of that but if he had to be a cop he was the best cop on the planet if he had to be a doctor he seemed to know how to you know everything about surgery and anatomy and physiology and all that so yeah it would be good you'd have to have the stuff in the canon to support that. Let's say you had heuristic computers with a mass knowledge that you could dump into your agents at a moment's notice. Right. Well, it wouldn't be hard to just go to a world in which they had some ancient Commonwealth device that literally lets you do that. Maybe it's on a, a an entertainment world where it's like, be something for a day. And so you go in and you, you plug in and it turns you into that. And after a day, it fades, or 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 you just come back and change back after a period of time. Or a variation of the, of the memory crystals. Yeah, you have skill uh, crystals. I'm sure you could add this to the game without any really negative effects outside of people whose character concepts are too closely linked to their skill set. Then they would have problems with their characters because every time you change them, they would essentially be playing a whole new character. There's the thing for D20. It's called the Slam Soldier. Now, this would be something you have to have cybernetics and teleportation technology. But basically what you can do is each soldier is set up with a certain amount of cybernetics. They have to have a teleportation, a satellite link at all times. But with that satellite link and teleportation technology... They can have armor, weapons, skill implants implanted into their body via teleportational surgery. And they are extremely versatile. They have a guy at a computer keyboard, kind of like an operator in the Matrix, saying, okay, you need a skill set that allow you to pilot and drive and fix vehicles. Okay, fine, you're going to get these skill implants with drive, pilot, and repair. Boom. Uploaded, and it gets teleported surgically into you. It's a, a D20 uh, class. I believe it's from Scorched Earth Studios. But that would be something. But as I said, for that type of swap, it? swappable skill set, ah, that alliteration's throwing me off there, you'd have to have the technology to back it up. And that'd just be something that you would have to find in the campaign. For Frenchworthy, it'd have to be something you'd find on a world. If not, it would have to be something specific to the game that you are running. Right. What I find interesting is deciding what skills are you swapping out. Because you can't keep everything. Right. Well, in Cyberpunk, they have these things called chipware sockets. And basically what you have is a, a thing on the uh, back of your spine or back of your head that um, 
you could slip these chips into and they're the skills. You only have so many sockets. So let's say you're going on a mission and you need to know German. You slip in a German chip. So now you speak German. But that takes up a space. So eventually you're going to pull that chip out. And for, for languages and stuff, it's great because that's not something you need to keep. You know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to need to speak German here, but when this mission is over, I don't need it anymore. I think the main but problem was with physical skills. There is muscle memory and such. What they did was they put a limitation on skills. So like a, a skill can only be so high from a chipware socket. And I believe that physical skills were, were lower than mental skills, like knowledge skills, like information skills. Right, personality things like things like um, you could get one for etiquette, but I think that one was lower because that had to rely on your own personality in a lot of ways. So it can it couldn't really go you couldn't go so high. History I don't think even had a limit because that's just pulling knowledge. They got something in um it's an older D twenty book. It's called Factory. It's magical cybernetics, and you have what is known as well. I mean, this is implantation, but you can have it taken out. It's called a skill wire. Mm-hmm. And it can give you anywhere from a plus five to a plus thirty circumstance bonus on a skill. Oh, oh yeah. Oh well, the thirties you're paying for. It. It's not cheap, but a plus thirty to like knowledge, physical sciences. Stephen <laughs> Hawking's fa lightweight. <laughs> John, you mentioned memory crystals. You know, it's funny. Yeah. We we may even want to try and include this. Uh, Maybe in an adventure or something, a, you know, like a treasure somebody could find, you know, like a like an artifact of some kind. Maybe somebody there are some crystals out there that have been, you know, overclocked like a computer, and they actually have dumped a skill into it. Because there's no reason why a memory crystal couldn't do that. Right. Yeah. I just like the idea that if you if you do that, you should be suppressing some other memory, because that way there is a trade off. There's a cost. Hmm. Or. You find a memory crystal. It has a skill. Trouble is, it was not recorded by a human. So you have the personality of some other race or some other mindset. Of Whenever a race. you use that skill, you may react differently. Maybe you lose English as your language. You speak that alien language for that period of time. That'd be a neat trade-off. Huh? You know, you speak some language that no one knows, but you can pick locks like I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Or it allows you to operate certain Tremelin technology. Yeah, unfortunately, you're speaking Tremelin. So, yeah, you're off there busy trilling away and uh, look around. They're going, what? Uh, nothing? You're just not speaking English anymore. Or, John, you know, another trade-off is, is that it might last for a period of time. And then, like, say, for Savage Worlds. But then once it wears off, you're fatigued until you sleep eight hours or something. Oh, yeah. Is being rewired to do something that it's not, it hasn't been trained to do. You basically had a telepathic data dump implanted in your head. Yeah, that would wipe out your brain after a while. You'd also end up with a killer headache. Yeah, yeah. That or it requires you to have a prehensile tail. Mm, Sorry. Well, okay, now that's nerfing it, John. Then it's not, it's not useful. You still go into a task, some parts of the task, you're going to have to improvise because you don't have, or you either have insufficient number of digits. Or you just don't have the flexibility, or you're not tall enough. Well, I like the idea that you use this thing, and it's going to give you this big bonus, but the clock is ticking. Once a certain amount of time goes by, then you're going to revert. You're going to bounce a lot lower because you've just done something to yourself. 
you've overdriven your brain or, or something like that, and you're going to you know, fall into a funk or go stunned or something like that. So now you've got these characters who are trying to get this job done and hopefully pull back to someplace safe because they're going to be suffering once this ends. Oh, yeah, it could be that in, in D20, you got to make a, a fortitude save. Well, no, you don't want to do that, John. I mean, you, you're giving them a big bonus, but you're t- and they know the cost up front. So now they've got something to role play. They're dealing with a time limit. They're dealing with knowledge that they're going to be suffering as a result. There's going to be direct consequences to their actions. This is great. I'm not saying nerfing. I mean, basically, you got to make a fortitude save or a vigor save in Savage Worlds to only suffer half consequences. Ah, that's not... I wouldn't even do that. I think that something like this, just knowing that you're going to have to suffer this, is going to promote good role-playing. It really make them use it more tactically than to say, well, do I feel lucky today? But wait a second, man. I mean, you're penalizing my character for... I had no chance, actually, of not having the effects. Right, yes. But you have the bonus. Some people want their cake and eat it, too. Well, they don't get it. <laughs> you, say, you tell them, say, hey, if you didn't want this, then don't use it. It's up to you and your players to decide how to make it fun and how to make it fair. I think that it's it's one of those things where the GM and the players get an opportunity to really jazz up their game in something yep. that they wouldn't normally do. Something that they want to bring into their campaign as a, a spicy thing to let them go after bigger challenges than they think they probably would be able to do otherwise. I like it. I like swappable skill sets. I think that that would be something that would be a lot of fun to add to the game, and I'm going to think about using it. What about the rest of you guys? I like it. I see using it in our other games, too, Bureau 13. Heck, there's agents who would love to be able to, to have swappable skill sets. Oh, yeah. <sighs> I need to know how to use computers. Okay, well, we do this. Boom, great. You can hack into the system. Or I need to be able to, oh, I don't know, read a certain ancient tongue. Fine. Boom. I'm going to use a skill set that Ray Robinson put together. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I want to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you got to make sure you don't step on the other player's spotlight. Are you finding a plugin module in Noram in Hinterland that gives you skills and some other things too? Uh, I, I can also see it being used as one of those kind of emergency. Yeah. Support things where, okay, you're a hacker. The bad guy, when he launched that law missile, it like knocked over a brick wall and fell on top of your hacker. Now you got to hack into something. Uh oh. Well, you know, we got this thing here. You know, someone could become the hacker, but there's going to be a cost to pay. Mm hmm. Yeah. I think that's fine. It doesn't step on the guy's spotlight time because he can't use that skill right now. Yeah. You know, make sure whatever choice you do with this, if you do decide to implement this, that you do it in a way that really makes the characters more excited about the game. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. The Tri-Tech Podcast is protected 
under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The TriTech Podcast is wholly owned by TriTech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.